from the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Host Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, April 3rd. Today, how social distancing is affecting older people, tips on surviving isolation, and a reminder that we're all alone together. When we all started staying home a couple weeks ago, I started thinking about older people a lot. Older people tend to be more isolated than younger people. And that's for a lot of different reasons. Maybe it's because they've retired. Maybe it's because they've lost a spouse or their siblings or some of their close friends. And then older people are also the most vulnerable to this coronavirus. And so it just seemed like this kind of cruel irony that the people who are already isolated are now being forced to further isolate. And we also know that isolation has really negative health consequences for older people. I'm Maggie Penman. I'm the senior producer of Post Reports. So so when you say, like, negative health consequences, obviously isolation is hard for our mental health and for keeping us feeling connected, but but you actually mean consequences for your physical health. Yeah. So I talked to a geriatrician named Carla Perisinato, who has studied this for years, and she said the effects are really profound. Increased rates of cardiovascular disease, worsened diabetes, increased risk of dementia. And when you look at actually the magnitude, it rivals some of the other things that we think of classically as health risks, such as smoking, obesity, air pollution. If there's something that's keeping me up at night, it's this. And and so when we're thinking about this like laundry list of potential negative consequences of isolation for older people, and it sounds like basically every bad thing can happen, how quickly do you start to see these really negative physical effects of isolation show up when you have a person who hasn't seen people for a few weeks or or maybe a few months. That's kind of what is really tricky about this is the researchers don't really know. We're kind of swamped right now because there are a number of different entities getting surveys on on board because we really don't have data at this point yet. It's starting to come in. But we don't have good data on what's actually being experienced by people out there. I talked to a researcher named Louise Hockley. I'm a senior research scientist with NORC at the University of Chicago. And she said that basically they don't know when these kinds of effects of being chronically isolated start to set in. The kinds of concerns I would have health-wise over the short term are probably already being experienced. Things like depression, anxiety, if the social isolation goes on at some for some duration of time, it's unclear how long it would need to go, but I could imagine that that would have implications for physical health. We do know that people who are chronically lonely, that is, they feel isolated, are at increased risk. It's kind of almost like we're all part of this massive social experiment that none of us signed up for. 
Well, well, so at least for now, do we have anecdotal evidence of what's happening to people? Or have you talked to people about some of the things that they're experiencing being older and also being in isolation right now? Yeah. So I talked to several people for this story. And one of the people I talked to was a man named Peter Stein. I'm 82. I'll be 83. So you could send me a gift or a card, anything. Well, it's fine. In in September. (laughs) Peter's a retired sociologist. So he said he totally gets the scientific argument for social distancing. He understands why it's important. But it still really hurt his feelings when his son and daughter-in-law told him and his wife that they wouldn't be able to see their grandson for a while. And I didn't know what they were talking about because they weren't infected and we weren't. So I felt hurt. Uh, My wife felt hurt, too. She cried for a while. I was very upset and uh, probably lasted a couple of days uh, till we kind of were resigned to the fact that this is the way it's going to be. So they're not actually as isolated as some of the people that researchers are most concerned about. They have each other. They are talking to their son and their grandson on Skype. They have neighbors who are checking in on them. But a lot of well-meaning children and grandchildren are staying away from their older family members to try and keep them safe. But the effect that this is having on older people emotionally is that they feel kind of abandoned. And so the experts that you talked to, did they have suggestions for how people can help older relatives feel less isolated or to prevent some of the potential negative health effects of this extended period of social distancing? As you might expect, a lot of them talked about technology. And for all of its flaws, technology can actually be really helpful right now, both to connect us to our older relatives and also to connect us to people who might need help. A lot of people are using Facebook and Google Forms and trying to find out about neighbors who might need someone to go get groceries for them and drop them off in a contact-free way. And even just a gesture like that can really make people realize that other people in their community care about them. And then another thing that researchers are hoping is that this might be a time when older adults who maybe have been reluctant to learn about new technology like FaceTime or Skype might see the value in it. And this is another area where younger adults actually have a lot to learn from older adults because, as one researcher told me, when older adults do use technology, they tend to use it wisely, which is to say that they use it to connect with people who they already have meaningful relationships with rather than maybe scrolling through Instagram or (laughs) talking to people we don't know very well on Tinder or, you know, some of the things that younger adults tend to do on the Internet. Though I would love to see someone like my grandma navigating Tinder or Twitter or any of them. Yeah. And, and, you know, maybe she'll do that, too. But (laughs) (laughs) what is really challenging and what a lot of researchers are talking about now, too, is In the same way that we're seeing a digital divide with younger people, like students who might not have access to the Internet at home and might not be able to participate in online learning that their schools are doing, there is a digital divide with older people as well. 
I talked to a woman, Denise Anderson, who lives in low-income housing for seniors here in D.C., and she's been great at adapting to Zoom. I actually talked to her over Zoom, and (laughs) she is just like really embracing the new technology. I'm really missing my grandkids, but we've been, you know, Zooming and FaceTiming. But for a lot of the people in her building, she said, Many of them don't have Wi-Fi, and she's worried about people who, for health reasons, might be more isolated anyway. Maybe they're on oxygen. Maybe they have diabetes. Maybe they're people who aren't getting out and about and getting exercise every day like she is. And they might not have access to a lot of these tools. I can go online. Like I had um, meals brought in to me from um, Medium Rare because a friend of mine was on Twitter. They said... You know, if you put it, you send a text to them, they'll send you a meal or whatever. Just tell them that you're a senior. And I did. I got meals, two dinners, two days in a row delivered to my door. Yeah. You know, so, but I can take advantage of these things. I can go online and see what's going on, you know, but if you don't know, and if you don't have anything but data, you can't afford to, with the free phone that you have you know, um, to do all these things. So for people who work with seniors and for organizations and cities and states, I think this is going to be the next challenge is trying to get people who haven't been online connected. Do do you think that doing this story has changed the way that you see older people? One thing that a researcher said to me that I've been thinking about a lot is that All of us right now are experiencing some amount of social isolation. We have younger adults right now experiencing some degree of social isolation that they find aversive. And the reality is this is an experience that older adults have been experiencing for some time and it hasn't been given due regard. Her hope is that we realize that all of us need people. It's not just younger people. It's not just older people. You know, we're all human beings and we all need each other. Literally the first thing that I'm going to do when we finish this conversation is call my grandma. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Maggie Penman is the senior producer of Post Reports. Hello. Hi, Grandma. Hi, Martina. How are you? Fine. How are you going? Good. I just called to say hello and to hear how you are. In my quarantine. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Having the experience of having been forced into captivity and understanding that This is for my own good, for the good of my family, and for the good of the people living around me, whether I know them or not. It's made it a lot easier for me to stay home. My name is Jason Rezaian. I'm a global opinions writer for The Washington Post. I used to be our correspondent in Iran um, until I was arrested in July of 2014. And I spent 544 days in prison, all of it in social isolation. Jason spoke to Post Reports producer Lena Mohammed. What I recognized pretty quickly was 
you should incorporate the things that work for you in your everyday life when you're thrust into the hardest of circumstances. So for me, that meant trying to find things to laugh at, to keep myself amused, to keep my mind active, to think about good days and understanding that the, the good days in the future, ones that we can plan for, are probably more helpful than reminiscing about the past. And just keeping my mind and body as active as possible, because although I was confined, my mind wasn't confined, and my body could not get past certain barriers, but within those barriers, I could move and stay physically active and therefore healthier. I have also been self-isolating for a few weeks, yeah, and I haven't had real human contact for quite some time now and it you know I live alone so it's just me and my cat and my question is how do I deal with being alone Hmm. like just myself I think that this is the one that's hardest for most people this idea of of being alone and being comfortable all by yourself Uh, it's not something that we do naturally so what I tried to do when I was forced into that situation was to be good company for myself, to you know become a friend to myself rather than an enemy. And I think that that sounds really obvious to people until you're forced into the situation of spending all your time uh, without other human beings. Uh, you know, I think it's completely okay to talk to yourself, to uh, make jokes uh, and laugh at them, to grieve about things that maybe you haven't had the chance to grieve about yet or completely. Uh, And to really just experience the fact that you're all alone because it's not going to happen that often in your life. So I'm a person who has struggled in the past with depression, with anxiety. And this is a time where it feels like my worst fears have come true. And I understand that this is a time when even people who haven't struggled with these things in the past, that these questions and fears are now things that they have to reckon with as well. How are you able to do it? You know, I'm not a a, a mental health expert. I'm not a professional, but I am somebody who's had to deal with a lot of these issues myself. And I think each one of us is going to have a different way of coping with anxiety and fears about the the larger implications of everything that's going on. Uh, when I was being held and I thought about the fact that I might never get out, I always tried to bring myself back to the circumstances that I was in and the elements of that that I could control. So I couldn't control whether or not the door of my cell would open. I couldn't control the walls around me, but I could control how I thought about those things. And I just tried to maintain calm because for me, I know that responding to a situation out of anger or from a really emotional point of view doesn't work. I mean, that's like poison for me. So, you know, I I found myself freaking out and banging on walls a couple of times. And I thought to myself, hey, you know what? That's not going to get me anywhere. So you really kind of quiet the mind, 
slow down, know your surroundings and understand the the different elements of it and try to, to come to as much peace with it as possible. And I, I think it's also really important to remember that you're not the only person having anxious feelings right now. So many of us are and will. And, you know, that's not a an answer to, to the problem, but it's a reminder that this is not just in your head. I mean, we're all dealing with a massive issue, the likes of which almost nobody alive has any memory of. So I have to say that I'm, I'm scared. And I think that, that any of us would be uh, foolish not to be. This is not something that we have a, a full handle on. But we're always dealing with unknowns in life. This just happens to be one that is killing a lot of people really quickly. For me, the things that, that I latch on to to stay optimistic and hopeful, first and foremost, my own relationships with, with the people that I care about. Second, you know, the the incredible showings of community and support and love and care for for one another that I'm seeing examples of every day. I think people should take permission to do the things that make them feel good. If that means doing a little bit more exercise or sleeping a little bit longer or reading a book or watching something funny on TV or eating some sugar. I think all of those things are completely justified right now. Uh, and, and you should look for the things that make you feel good. Uh, you know, you should probably smoke fewer cigarettes and definitely don't smoke, uh, you know, don't smoke drugs. But otherwise, do what makes you feel good. Jason Resign is a global opinions writer for The Post. Lena Mohammed is a producer for Post Reports. And now, one more thing about the power of social connection. I think that for a lot of us, one of the hardest aspects of this coronavirus outbreak is that in this really scary time, all we want is to be close to the people that we care about, and closeness is the one thing that we're not allowed to have. I'm Sarah Kaplan, and I cover science and the environment for The Post. One of the reasons that it's so hard for us to be alone in this time is that humans are social animals, and our bodies, at a very sort of basic biological level, are built to be around one another. When people are alone or feel lonely or isolated, their bodies start gearing up for danger. Their nervous systems produce norepinephrine, which is this hormone that's associated with the fight or flight response. Their immune system sort of gears up to have to heal a wound or fight off an infection on its own, and it goes into overdrive producing a lot of inflammation. You know, back in the days when we were hunter-gatherers, having to be afraid of, you know, you don't want to get lost from your clan because you could get killed by a saber-toothed cat, that response made sense. 
But right now, in modern times, the stressors that we experience and the kinds of loneliness that we experience, it's more abstract. And so we're just sort of in this constant state of unease that's really unhealthy. Our blood pressure is elevated. Our blood sugars are level or high. And in that context, that's when we become at risk for things like atherosclerosis and heart disease and diabetes and other chronic health conditions. When I first started calling psychologists to learn more about the health effects of social distancing, I kind of knew about this research on the health effects of loneliness, and I was expecting to get kind of this bad news that it's not good for us. But I was actually really surprised to learn that there's also this whole body of research on how social connection, human connection, actually bolsters your immune system. This one psychologist, Julianne Holtlundstad from Brigham Young University, she did a meta-analysis, so a big survey of almost 150 studies involving hundreds of thousands of people. And she found that people who were more socially connected were 50% more likely to live longer. And basically what she said is that that indicates that even though alienation can be harmful to us, kinship and togetherness and a sense of connection is an even more powerful bomb. The idea is that we get this sense of security from our friends and family, and that allows us to go into stressful situations with a kind of calmer physiology. And that's really important because the hormones that are involved in stress, things like cortisol and epinephrine, they actually hinder our immune cells' ability to function. And so socially, we want to stay connected with one another. We want to be communicating, talking to our friends and family over Skype or Zoom, doing something kind for a neighbor or for a coworker from afar, whether that's like sending them a card or you know, just writing them an email. There's actually evidence that what psychologists call pro-social behavior, so things like volunteering, but also any kind of of act of generosity also bolsters your immune system and curbs the physical symptoms of stress. And so things like that, ways that we can maintain our human connections, maintain our kindness and our sense of togetherness in the middle of this, are really, really important. And this is not to say that we should not be keeping apart from one another physically. All of the psychologists emphasize that physical distancing in this time of pandemic is incredibly important and is one of the most powerful ways that we can all be a part of assisting in the fight against the coronavirus. But they said we shouldn't think about it as social distancing. We should think about it as physical distancing, because even though we are physically apart from each other, we're not alone. Sarah Kaplan is a science reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Maggie Penman. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Jordan Marie Smith, Rennie Svernovsky, and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. 